Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith-affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, and welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we tackle our most pervasive fears with truth. Because life is too short for any of us to live enslaved. We would love to connect with you online. Just visit our show notes to learn how to connect with us. I'm Jennifer Slattery, here to talk about one of my all-time favorite topics, a truth that, once fully received, can absolutely change our lives, and that's God's promise to love us perfectly, faithfully, unconditionally, and eternally. Our view of God and our ability or inability to receive His love drastically affects our confidence and peace. When we doubt His love, we tend to also doubt His ability and desire to care for us. We begin to live as anxious orphans, always fighting to survive, rather than the cherished, protected, and well-provided-for children that God says we are. There's a sense of peace, of confidence and security one experiences when they're with someone they know loves them. They can relax, drop their guard, and whatever mask they might otherwise wear, and simply be. We experience such freedom when we begin to recognize we are both fully known and completely loved, especially when we recognize the one who loves us, who has promised to always love us with a relentless, perfect love, also holds all history in his hands. I shared this quote in episode 68 titled, Finding Courage in God Our Father, but I'm sharing it again because it is so, so good, and it conveys such important truth. Tim Keller said, quote, unless we are profoundly certain that God is our good father, we will never be able to say, thy will be done. And if we cannot say, thy will be done from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace. There is so much truth packed in that one statement. If we don't truly believe God is not just our father, but a good father, then we won't trust his motives or his interactions with us. We'll begin to wonder if maybe he'll ignore us, if maybe he'll grow tired of us, or even if he will act unloving towards us. And so I would add to Keller's quote by saying, unless we know with certainty that God is love in his core and that he constantly, persistently directs his perfect love towards us, we won't fully trust him with our lives. We'll begin to withhold parts of ourselves. We'll fight for control rather than choosing surrender, which in turn will feed our anxiety while killing our joy and peace. Worse, self-reliance distances us from God. It causes us to first disregard and then drown out his voice. And therefore, it leads us further and further from the hope-filled, supernaturally empowered, beyond expectations life that Christ promised us. Therefore, it's imperative we know the condition of our hearts, the depth of our trust, and that we prayerfully take steps to deepen our relationship with Christ. As our relationship with Him grows, our courage grows as well. Love, real love, can be super hard to define, let alone understand, especially if we've experienced the pain, as we all have, unfortunately, of having received imperfect love. 
Therefore, we need to ask God to clarify what real love is and isn't. Consider Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, a group of believers who had come out of idolatry, which often ritualized and celebrated sexual sin, including temple prostitution, and therefore a group of people who probably wrestled with insecurities and feelings of worthlessness and shame. So he was writing to them, and in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, he wrote, speaking of God the Father, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Or as the NET states, because you have been rooted and grounded in love. That's our position in Christ. We are anchored, firmly established in love. God's love holds us firm, much like the roots of a tall, towering tree. So I live in Nebraska, an area known for its its really stormy springs and falls. And while we don't always experience tornadoes, our neighborhoods are often ravished by some pretty strong storms each season. And then driving through town the day after, I'm always intrigued by which trees were able to remain standing versus those that toppled over, sometimes completely uprooted. And it's interesting, sometimes those that had previously looked so strong They really hadn't been, whereas other trees that I would have expected to topple over, they remained standing because their roots went deep. May our roots plunge ever deeper into Christ and his love because we know his love will hold us secure. And the deeper our roots, the more secure we'll feel, even amidst life's most powerful storms. And this is why Paul prayed that the Ephesian believers would come to know the love that surpasses knowledge, a love so deep that we can know more about it each day without ever truly grasping its vastness. And notice Paul wasn't talking about filling their minds with a bunch of facts. I mean, he wanted them to know that Christ's love is an irrefutable reality. Absolutely. But more than that, he wanted God's love to be their present reality, for their knowledge of that love to go beyond intellectual assent to a depth of knowing one can only gain through personal experience. As they did life with Christ, as they felt his comfort during times of sorrow, as they witnessed his miracles in situations that felt beyond hope, as they experienced his provision in times of want, as they saw his faithfulness to keep his promises— they would come to understand just how vast and inexhaustible, how deep and wide and long his love truly is. This journey of increased emotional intimacy would naturally result in their being, quote, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All of his divine attributes, his power, his grace, his love, all of him filling all of us until there is room for nothing else. We all have areas of misconception, falsehoods, and heart barriers that can challenge our ability to live fully anchored in God's love. 
and many that we're maybe not even aware of, in part because most of us are simply moving too fast. We're too busy, too rushed to contemplate the condition of our souls to the depth that we need. I've discovered my greatest steps towards freedom come when I prioritize times of silence and reflection. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. As some of you might know from past episodes, I don't have a glamorous or peaceful past. And while I first trusted in Christ for salvation as a young child, during what was the equivalent of a neighborhood VBS type event, my spiritual maturity and knowledge remained near non-existent until I became an adult and connected with a local faith community. Now, if asked, I could have talked at length on God's love how his love was perfect, how it was never failing, never ending, and how he had proven the depths of his love when he died on the cross. But that head knowledge I so quickly began accumulating never quite reached the deepest, most wounded places of my heart, the places where all my inner lies resided. Because while I believed all those truths were indeed true for everyone else, I couldn't quite accept that they were true for me. Because I wasn't fully anchored in my father's love, my emotions continually tossed me about. And then one day, the prayer pastor invited me to a woman's retreat. Now, if I've shared this story before, please bear with me. I do tend to share it a lot because it had such a profound impact on me. Anyway, while her invitation totally freaked me out, I had never been to a woman's retreat before. I had no idea what to expect. I had a feeling the event would seriously challenge my comfort zone. But I was too much of a people pleaser to decline. So I thought up a logical excuse. I couldn't leave my daughter for that long. She was maybe four at the time. And my husband was a shop director over four or five locomotive repair shops throughout the Los Angeles basin. That was where we lived at the time. So in other words, he had a really demanding, high-stress, time-consuming job where he routinely worked 60 to 70 hours a week. So I had to stay home with my daughter, right? Problem solved, right? (laughs) Wrong. My husband, who was much more enthused about this endeavor than I was, he decided to take vacation days and use my retreat as an opportunity for him and Ashley, our daughter, to spend time with him and his mom in Texas. Long story short, God made it clear he wanted me to join the other ladies from my church for an extended weekend at a Santa Barbara monastery. And so I went. 
The first night, our leader read the account of the Samaritan woman from John chapter 4. You might be familiar with her story. If not from scripture, then maybe from when I discussed it here in this podcast in episode 51. The Bible tells us one day, relatively early in Jesus's ministry, he and his disciples traveled through Samaria on their way to Galilee. And when they reached a village called Sychar, Jesus paused, that was in Samaria, Jesus paused to rest at the local well while his disciples went into the village to buy food. Soon a woman approached and Jesus engaged her in conversation. Through it, he zeroed in on her spiritual need, the emptiness she must have been feeling, and he stirred within her a thirst only he could fill. He began by asking her for a drink, which shocked her, as evident in her response. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman, she said. How can you ask me for a drink? To which he replied, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. A water that, speaking of the Holy Spirit, would become within her a spring welling up to eternal life. This account captivated and grieved me. I, too, wanted to be filled, but I felt so empty, and I couldn't understand why. I had trusted in Christ for salvation, and therefore I'd been adopted into God's family. I was His beloved child. The Holy Spirit, God's living water, dwelled within me, but it in no way felt like a bubbling brook. It felt more like a trickling stream. I came to realize, just through a lot of prayer and a lot of wrestling with God, that the disconnect I felt, it came from me, not from God. Wounds from my past hindered my ability to truly receive His love. That weekend began a major healing journey of God revealing one by one by one falsehoods that I'd come to believe, healing the hurts that had caused those lies to form, and shifting my perspective ultimately off of me and my weak and often sinful self and onto God and his perfect goodness and love. When I meet with women who are struggling to accept God's love and grace for themselves, which actually is pretty frequent, I often encourage them to trace out the statements their doubts make. So, for example, if someone feels like they're simply too bad for God to love, as if their past has disqualified them from God's love, I ask them if they believe God's love is conditional, which then it wouldn't be perfect, right? And his love would have to be conditional for their sins, past or present, to deaden his love. For their doubts to be true, his grace, Christ's death, would have to be insufficient as well. Now, I'm not saying that God condones sin. What I am saying is that his love remains always. I used to believe that God had favorites, and I was far from one of them. I basically viewed myself as something of an afterthought, someone who existed for everyone else. And when something good happened for my family, I assumed that was for my daughter or my husband's sake, that God was basically blessing them, and I was just kind of benefiting from that which seemed logical. I mean, after all, they were good people. My husband was responsible. He was generous, kind. He made good choices. In essence, I was placing my faith in my husband more than in the unchanging, always faithful character of God. So when my husband made what I determined to be a really poor choice, I panicked and I felt completely 
abandoned. Now, I've referenced this period in a past episode, but to put it simply, in 2006, my husband quit a lucrative and prestigious job in Southern California and moved us all, quite literally, across the country for a new position with a new company, only to quit that job six months later. From there, we moved into a 500-square-foot rent-by-the-month apartment that we were almost unexpectedly kicked out of over the 4th of July weekend due to the property manager's overbooking. And then maybe two months later, we moved again, this time to Kansas City, Missouri, and into another tiny, only this time filthy, rent-by-the-month apartment in an area that warranted all five deadbolts that had been placed on our front door. Well, about a month and a half later, we moved again, this time to a tiny town about half an hour north where I had an encounter with a nursing home resident I will never forget. So our family went to the facility first, just looking for a way to serve. And while we were there, we met and formed a relationship with a tiny spitfire of a woman named Betty, who battled Alzheimer's. We visited her about every Saturday, at first to play cards, until her disease made that too confusing for her. And then we just kind of just brought treats and visited. And as her disease progressed, she turned increasingly hostile and foul-mouthed, most likely because of her increased fear that often can happen if you have Alzheimer's, just everything feels foreign. And so I think that's what triggered a lot of her hostility. Well, one visit, my daughter and I arrived to find Betty more agitated than normal. Her friend had fallen, broken her hip, and had been taken to the hospital. And Betty wanted to see her. So she asked if I would take her. Well, I said I would as long as I got permission. And I began going through the appropriate channels to get permission from Betty's daughter, who didn't live close by, and then also from the facility in which she lived. Well, I arrived to pick her up a few days later. And I stopped first in the activity director's office to let her know. And what that staff member said to me that morning, it grieved me. So, so deeply. So apparently, Betty had been acting particularly ugly to the other residents. I don't know what she'd been doing, and I really didn't want to know what she'd been doing. And so I quickly ended the conversation and hurried to get Betty out of her room, out of the facility, and into my vehicle. On the drive, Betty proved the activity director's words true. No one could drive correctly, and everyone on the road, everyone in the hospital parking lot was a blankety-blank. And while her behavior didn't upset me, I wasn't sure how to respond, and so I largely didn't. But then as we were walking toward the hospital doors, her cussing, people gawking, I felt a gush of love so strongly, I knew it came from God. I knew that I was feeling God's love for Betty. And I sensed him saying to me, not audibly, but but like a whisper in my spirit, I don't see her that way. And I knew he was referring to the people we passed, but also to the picture the activity director had painted when I first picked Betty up. Whereas when others viewed her, they did so through the lens of her behavior, God's vision went so much deeper. He saw her sickness, her disease, and how it was affecting her, how it was enslaving her. That was the realization he gave me in that moment. And through that encounter, he helped me see myself and my ugly and sinful behaviors, which I struggled with much more often than I liked, through his grace. He helped me understand his grace in a way I hadn't been able to before. I was also better to understand, to accept his love, having felt it flowing through me to someone else who in that exact moment was acting far from lovely. 
Have you ever paused to consider all the ways Jesus interacted with people when he lived in human form on earth? Consider the woman from Matthew chapter 9. Scripture says she'd been menstruating for 12 years, which would have caused pretty much everyone, respectable Jews especially, to view and treat her as dirty, which means she was most likely bowed low with shame for some time. Desperate for healing, she pressed through the crowd. She touched the hem of Christ's garment, and she was immediately healed, and it seems that she wanted to slip quietly away. And had Jesus let her do so, though she would have left physically whole, her heart and her soul would have remained deeply wounded. And so he called her forward. And referring to her as daughter, a term of endearment we don't see him using with any other woman in scripture, by the way, only this sweet lady who felt probably far from his beloved. And in doing that, Jesus broke her shame. And then there was the blind man in Mark chapter 8, whom Christ took by the hand and led away from the crowd, holding his hand. Just envision that for a minute. Such a tender display of love and attentive care. Or the Egyptian slave in Genesis 16, whom God revealed himself to, a woman who most likely felt worthless and unseen, but then called God the God who sees, because she knew he saw her. One of my favorite examples of God's heart, however, comes from Matthew chapter 8. And it tells us about a leper who approached Christ asking for mercy. Now you can sense his despondency, how insignificant he felt in his posture and his words. Scripture says the leper bowed low before Jesus saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, if you care. Lord, if it wouldn't trouble you. According to verse 3, quote, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus touched the man society had deemed untouchable. The man who by necessity and the laws of that day lived in isolation and probably experienced a loneliness, the most lonely among us, never will. Lepers couldn't enter the temple, they couldn't even enter a walled city, and they weren't allowed to interact with anyone except other people who had leprosy. And because leprosy was such a horrific, contagious, and incurable disease, lepers were believed to be cursed by God, and they were greatly feared. And we all know how humanity tends to treat people they're afraid of, right? As Alfred Edersheim wrote in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Quote, no one was even to salute him. His bed was to be low, inclining toward the ground. If he even put his head into a place, it became unclean. No less a distance than four cubits, that's six feet, must be kept from a leper. Or if the wind came from that direction, a hundred were scarcely sufficient. Rabbi Meir would not eat an egg purchased in a street where there was a leper. Another rabbi boasted that he always threw stones at them to keep them far off while others hid themselves or ran away. To such extent did rabbinism carry its inhuman logic in considering the leper as a mourner, that it even forbade him to wash his face, end quote. And yet, Jesus touched this man. And we know this wasn't because that was the only way he could heal him. Jesus had healed a seriously sick centurion's daughter and cast out demons from an undisclosed distance and brought a man named Lazarus back to life with a firm command. 
And yet, Jesus touched this untouchable man. Can you imagine what that felt like to him? To receive not just human touch, but the touch of the Savior. And I'm certain it was a tender, affectionate touch because Jesus loved him and saw his pain and his love moved him to compassion. Jesus' love moves him towards us as well. When we love someone, we're favorably disposed towards them. We experience joy when they feel joy. We're grieved when they hurt. We long to bring them comfort when they're stressed or afraid. And we try to find ways to help them when they're overwhelmed. We also tend to see the best in them and give them grace for their mistakes and their poor behavior. That is God's heart towards us. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that he rejoices over us with singing. That's mind-blowing, isn't it, to think that you and I might possibly cause the God of all creation to break out in joyful song? As Psalm 37 verse 23 says, He delights in every detail of our lives. Our God delights in us. That is super hard to comprehend, isn't it? Until we remember that He is our good Father, and we are His beloved chosen child. My understanding of God's love, it deepened considerably once I became a mom. When my daughter was an infant, I would spend hours just watching her. I loved watching her sleep. I loved watching her laugh, take her first steps, study a leaf or the older kids playing on the playground. Didn't matter what she was doing, really. And then when she got older and began to dabble with crayons and paint, here's the thing. I received as much joy watching her scribble on a piece of paper at age two or three as I did watching her create beautiful and highly skilled paintings in her late teen years. My joy and love didn't increase with her skill set, her intelligence, or her experience. I loved her simply because she was my girl, my little miss. And although she's now 23, taller and stronger than me, she's married and has a career, she's still my little miss my baby girl, and I still love to watch her. I still love blessing her, and I still want to do all I can to see her become everything God created her to be. Considering God's love is perfect and so beyond anything you or I will ever feel, completely devoid of pride, selfishness, fear, and defensiveness, I know what I feel for my daughter is just a smidgen of what God feels for you and I, his children. He knows us completely, he loves us fully, and he is for us always. The more we recognize and accept those truths, the more confident and secure we'll feel regardless of what comes. God doesn't just love. He is the embodiment of love and the ultimate source of any earthly love you and I give or receive from one another. In Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, God proclaimed his name to Moses, the man he'd used to liberate his people from centuries of slavery and oppression, saying, quote, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. There's great significance in how a person introduces and describes themselves. Their words reveal what's most important to them. And notice God didn't say, the Lord, the Lord, sovereign and powerful, able to destroy nations with a single breath. While that's true, that was not how he wanted his people or how he most wants us to know him. He most wants to be known for his love, a compassionate love, 
that doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, that sees and is moved by our pain, and as scripture states, remembers that we're but dust, meaning weak and prone to sin. He's gracious and slow to anger. Though we turn from him again and again, we rebel against his commands, and so often we treat his love with contempt, allowing ourselves to become captivated by so many lesser things, and yet still his love remains. In fact, he is abounding in loyal love, filled with more love than our hearts could ever comprehend, could ever fully take in, more than we need, and way more than we could ever exhaust. He's abounding in faithfulness as well. On the night before his death, before his most powerful, unimaginable display of love ever, Jesus gathered his disciples close and said in John 15 verse 9, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Just think about that for a minute. Our Savior loves you and I with the same depth of love with which God the Father loves him. The same love between God the Father and God the Son. And in the surrounding verses, he encourages us to abide in, to dwell in his love, to dwell in him who is love. And we do that through obedience. Now, I don't believe this means he loves us more when we obey and less when we don't. Instead, I think this means through obedience, we're most able to experience his love because we're not blocking it by our sin and rebellion and hard-heartedness. I've shared in past episodes how our family has opened our home numerous times to youth from traumatic backgrounds, kids who really don't understand and certainly don't trust love, and so they often barricade themselves from our love. And I began to notice a pattern with one teen in particular. Whenever he would do something wrong, big or small, he would immediately withdraw. He would come home, he would hurriedly slip downstairs, hoping we wouldn't see him or say anything to him, and he remained guarded during conversations. He did everything he could to avoid us, and I believe this was for two reasons. First, I think he was waiting for us to punish him. I think he was waiting for us to punish him, and second, I think he expected us to reject him, and so he was protecting himself from that. And in our disobedience, we can do the same with God. We can begin to pull away, to close our ears to his voice, because his voice will always call us to course correct, and we can begin to distance ourselves from his love. Our obedience, on the other hand, leads to increased intimacy with our Lord, to a deeper experience with His presence, which in turn leads to increased joy, peace, and strength. Because as Psalm 16 verse 11 states, in God's presence is fullness of joy. And Nehemiah 8.10 tells us the joy of the Lord is our strength. Thank you for listening and for joining me in this journey against fear and in this journey of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you and I, we were created for freedom by a God who loves us more than we could comprehend, a God who is always for us, who has the most amazing plans for us and full power to bring his plans to pass. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast, then you won't miss a single episode. Share it with your friends, and I would love it if you would rate it as well. That encourages us, and it helps others to find it. Until next time, may you live as one who truly has been set free. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Faith Over Fear, a production of Life Audio and the Salem Web Network. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. To learn more about Jennifer Slattery or to check out any of the resources she mentioned in this episode, 
Just head over to her website, jenniferslatterylivesoutloud.com, or check out our show notes. This episode was produced by Kelly Givens and edited by Stephen Sanders. A special thanks to our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey. For more Faith Toolkit podcasts like this, just head over to lifeaudio.com. Feeling stressed? Let's take better care of you. I'm Bonnie Gray, the host of Breathe, the Stress Less podcast. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.